Chapter Six, Part One of the Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boldwood. Chapter Six, Part One. A dip in the creek and a careful, if hasty, toilet produced a simple change of ideas. The morning was almost too fine. The leaves of the great poplars were unstirred, which gave an unnaturally calm and eerie appearance to the landscape. This was not dispelled by the red sun shedding a theatrical glare over the snow peaks and shoulders of the mountain range. "'My holiday's over, Sheila,' said he, moving from the fire-front to the table upon which was such an appetizing display that he wished he had gone to bed a little earlier. However, the savour of the devilled turkey reassured him, and he felt more drawn towards the menu which was to form the sustaining meal of the day. "'Now what do you think of the weather? Shall I have a safe journey to the station?' "'Well, you may and you may not, sir. We all think there's a big storm coming. If it's wind, it may blow a tree down on the coach and horses. If it rains hard, there'll be a flood, which will rise the Kiwa and the little river in a few hours, so as they can't be crossed under a week. That's a bad lookout, said the traveller, making good time with the scrambled eggs and toast, which succeeded the devil turkey. But we'll have to go straight at it, as your friend and philosopher Gordon has it. By the way, I bought a copy at the post-office store, so I can read it on the way down and think of you when I come to the lines, kindness in another's trouble, and so on. Oh, I dare say, replied the girl, a lot you'll think about me when you're on the road to Melbourne, and wherever else you're bound for. But we'll all remember you here. Never fear. And if you ever come back, you'll see how glad all hands will be to welcome you. "'You're only too good to me. "'But why should the other people have this sort of feeling towards me?' "'Well, one reason is that you never put on any side, as they call it. "'You've been free and easy with them, without being too familiar. "'The country people hereabouts, and in the bush generally, "'may be rough and haven't seen much, "'but they know a gentleman when they see one. "'And besides, there's another reason.' "'And here she seemed to hesitate.' "'And what might that be?' "'Well, it came out somehow, I don't know how, "'that when you were pinched, "'that is, nearly arrested and tried for being in "'with the O'Hara's and Little River Jack in the cattle racket, "'that you wouldn't give them away, "'never let on that you'd been with them in the claim, "'or seen cattle in their yard or anything.' "'But, my dear Sheila, I heard nothing and saw nothing "'that the town crier at the market-place,' Is there one in this droll country, I wonder? Might not have proclaimed aloud. I didn't know there was any cross-work, is that right? Going on. I certainly guessed, after I visited Mr. Bruce, that I might just as well not advertise the O'Haras, and as Little River Jack certainly saved my life on Razor Back, how could I give him up to the law? Now, could I? Not as a gentleman, sir, I should say. "'I suppose Mr. Bruce is pretty wild about it, after you being at his house and all that. "'He's a fine man, Mr. Bruce. All he's got, he's earned. 
his brother and he worked like niggers when they first came from home now they're well off and on the way to be richer still but no man likes to be robbed rich or poor he'll have jack yet for this if he don't mind sharp as he is well i suppose it serves him right i suppose it does said the girl hesitatingly but i can't help feeling sorry for him he's so pleasant and plucky and such a bushman he can find his way through those wombat ranges they say the darkest night that ever was and drive cattle besides tis pity of him too he cried bold can he speak and fairly ride as the douglas said about marmion who though more highly placed than poor jack was but indifferent honest after all do you read walter scott well i've read bits of the lady of the lake and marmion too we had them to learn by heart at school only i haven't much time to read now have i it's early up and down late but you better finish your breakfast it's getting on to six o'clock and i see josh walking down to the stable so i will but tell me how do you write out a receipt for a horse when you've sold him oh easy enough this is to certify that i have sold my bay horse branded j r or whatever he is to job jones for value received that's enough you've only to sign your name and put a stamp on nothing could be simpler get the landlord to receipt my bill while i write out a cheque and ask george if he's put my saddle and bridle into the coach the girl ran out he wrote the cheque for the account which he had seen before breakfast then more carefully a receipt for the cob in the name of sheila maguire in which he enclosed a sovereign isn't that your side saddle where's your horse you haven't got one eh why i thought every girl in this country had one mine got away i'm afraid i'll never see him again what will you give me for the cob he's easy and safe if you don't try the razorback business with him i wouldn't mind chancing a tenner for him sir would you though well i'll take it here's the receipt you can pay me when i ask for it at that moment the coachman having drawn on his substantial gloves mounted the box and called out all aboard mr blount pressed the receipt and the sovereign into the girl's reluctant hand who came out of the room with rather a heightened colour while the driver drew his lines taut as the passenger mounted the box and was whirled off if not in the odour of sanctity yet surrounded with a halo so to speak of cheers and good wishes once off and bowling along a fairly good road behind a team of four fast horses specially picked for leaving or approaching towns a form of advertisement for the great coaching firm of cobb and company then as now famed for speed safety and punctuality throughout the length and breadth of australasia mr blount's spirits began to improve keeping pace indeed with the rising of the sun and his own progress that luminary in this lovely month of early spring was seen in his most favourable aspect the merry brawling river now rushing over bars gleaming with quartz pebbles the boom of the water-gun the deep reed-fringed reaches in which the waterfowl dived and fluttered alike engaged the traveller's alert interest the little river took wilful fantastic curves as it seemed to him through the broad green meadows sometimes close clinging to a basaltic bluff 
over which the coach appeared to hang perilously, while on the other side it was the mile-wide, level greensward, thickly covered with grazing kine and horses. The driver, a wiry native from the Shoalhaven gullies, was cheerful and communicative. He was in a position to know and enlarge upon the names and characters of the different proprietors of the estates through which they passed. The divisions were indicated by gates in the fences crossing the roads at right angles, at which period Mr. Joshua Cable requested his passenger to drive through while he jumped down and opened the gates and shut them after the operation was concluded. As this business was only necessary at distances varying from five to ten miles apart, the stoppages were not serious, though in one instance, when the enclosure was small and the number of gates unreasonably large, his temper was ruffled. "'Ding these gates,' he said. "'They're enough to ruin a chap's temper. They put up a new cross-fence here, wire, too, since I was here last. This is a bother, and when a man is driving by himself at night it's worse.' and they can summons you and fine you two pounds and costs for leaving a gate open, worse luck. "'How do you manage, then?' asked the passenger, all unused to seeing a coach and four without groom or guard. "'Well, it's rather a ticklish bit of work, even with the pair, if they're at all touchy, as I've had a many a time. You drive round before you come to the gate and tie your leaders to the fence, as close as you can get em. I carry halters, and that's the best and safest way, but if you haven't em with you, you must do the best you can with the lead reins. You're close enough to jump to their heads and muzzle them if they're making a move. No chance to stop four horses after they're off. When you've opened the gate and driven through, you have to turn your team back and let them stand with the leader's heads over the fence till you shut the gate. If it's a gate that'll swing back to the post and you've only a pair, you may manage to give it a shove just as it clears the hind wheels, but it's a chance. It's a nuisance, especially at night-time and in rainy weather, but there's nothing else for it, and it's best always to keep sweet with the owners of the property the road runs through. Now we're five miles without a gate, said Josh Cable as he led his horses out and proceeded to make up time with three horses at a hand gallop, and the off-wheeler, a very fast horse, trotting about fourteen miles an hour. The road's level, too. We'll pull up in another half-hour at the horse and jockey for dinner. It may be explained that in Australian road travel, whatever may be the difference of climate, which ranges indeed from sunshine to snow, the dinner, so-called, is a meal taken at or about midday, an hour or two one way or another not being regarded of importance. The evening meal at sundown, allowing for circumstances, is invariably tea though by no means differing in essentials from the one at midday. It is at the option of the traveller to order and pay extra for the orthodox dinner, with wine, if procurable, as an adjunct. The Horse and Jockey Hotel was duly reached, the half-hour dinner dispatched, and at sunrise the railway station at Warrangar reached, into which, after a hurried meal, Mr. Blount was enabled to hurl himself and luggage, the train not being crowded. Long before this hour he had ample time to admire the skill used in driving on a road never free from stumps and sidelings, creeks and other pitfalls. Certainly the seven lamps, which he had never seen before on a coach, assisted the pilot's course, 
with the light afforded by the great burners three on high above the roof of the composite vehicle a sort of roofed carriole defended as to the sides by waterproof curtains while four other lamps gave the driver confidence as they enabled him to see around and for some distance ahead as clearly as in the day in sixteen hours from the terminus mr blount was safely landed per cab at the imperial club melbourne in which institution he enjoyed the privileges of an honorary member and was enabled to learn that the patina would leave the queen's wharf at four o'clock p m next day for launceston here he half expected to have one or more letters in answer to his appeal to the mercy of the court as represented by mrs bruce and miss imogen or its justice in the shape of edward hamilton bruce of maronda a magistrate of the territory but none came other epistles of no importance comparatively also a fiery telegram from hobart don't lose time your presence urgently needed so making arrangements for his correspondence to follow him to the tasmanian club hobart he betook himself to the intercolonial steamship and at bedtime was sensible that a capful of wind was vexing the oft turbulent straits of bass hobart the peaceful the picturesque the peerless among australian summer climates whether late or early hither come no scorching blasts no tropical rains nestling beneath the shadow of mount wellington semicircled by the broad and winding derwent proving by old-fashioned in many instances picturesquely ruinous edifices it claims to be one of britain's earliest outposts mr blount from the moment of his landing found himself in an atmosphere about as peacefully secluded as at bunjil from this elysian state of repose he was routed immediately after breakfast by the tempestuous entrance of mr frampton tregonwell mining expert and consulting engineer as was fully set forth on his card sent in by the waiter bless my soul called out this volcanic personage as soon as he entered the door which he shut carefully behind him you are a most extraordinary chap one would think you had been born in tasmania instead of the duchy of cornwall whence all the captains of the great mining industry have come from since the days of the phoenicians and even earlier lucky you picked up a partner who is as sharp excuse me as you are ahem blount when i'm told what all this tirade is about ending with an atrocious pun perhaps i may be able to reply answered the object of the attack complacently finishing his second cup of tea did you get my telegram answer me that valentine blount i did and have come over to this tight little island at great personal inconvenience as you may have observed mr tregonwell have you a recollection of our buying a half share in a prosecuting silver claim of four men's ground in the west coast i do seem to recall some such transaction just before i left for australia all the fellows i met in the hobart club told me it was a swindle and advised me not to put a pound in it that was the reason that you did invest in it if i know you precisely i've rarely taken advice against my own judgment that i haven't regretted did it turn out well 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 it's the richest silver load on the island in all australasia almost shouted tregonwell fifty feet wide gets richer and richer as it goes down 
"'I've been offered twenty thousand pounds cash down for my half. "'You could get the same if you care to take it.' "'I've a great mind to take it,' said Blount languidly. "'Minds are so uncertain. "'Here today, gone tomorrow.' "'Take it?' said his partner with frenzied air and trembling with excitement. "'Take it? "'Well!' suddenly changing his tone. "'I'll give you a drive this afternoon. "'Capital cabs they have here, "'and the best horses I've seen out of England. "'The way they rattle down these hills on the metal is marvellous. "'We can't start for the mine till tomorrow morning. "'I suppose you'd like to see it. "'But if you're determined to sell, "'I'd like you to see a friend of mine first. "'He has a magnificent place a few miles out. "'He'll be charmed to meet you, I'm sure.' "'Certainly, by all means. "'What's your friend's name?' "'Is he a squatter or a fruit-grower? "'They seem to be the leading industries over here.' "'Neither. He's a medical man in large practice. "'His name is MacAndrew, "'medical superintendent of the new Norfolk Lunatic Asylum.' "'Well, really, Tregonwell, this is too bad,' "'answered the other partner, roused from his habitual coolness. "'Has it escaped your memory that you wished to sell out "'before I left for Australia?' "'that I stuck to the claim and have been paying my share of expenses ever since?' "'Quite true, old fellow. "'It was your confounded obstinacy and luck combined, a sheer fluke, "'which has landed us where we are, not a particle of judgment on either side. "'And now, then, let's get through business detail before lunch. "'I have it all here.' "'Mr. Tregonwell was a thoroughbred Cornishman, short, square-set, and immensely powerful. "'His coal-black, close-curled hair with dark, deep-set eyes, short, upright forehead, and square jaw, proclaimed him a cousin Jack to all who had ever rambled through the picturesque duchy, or heard the surges boom on castle-crowned Tintagel. In one way or other, he had been interested in mines since his boyhood, had, indeed, delved below sea-level in those stupendous shafts in his native place of Truro. An offshoot of a good old Cornish family, he had worked up to his present position from a penniless childhood, and a youth not disdaining hard manual labour as a miner, when none better was to be had. This gave him a more thorough knowledge of the underground world and its inhabitants than he could otherwise have obtained. As a mining captain, therefore, his reputation had preceded him from the silver mines of Rio Tinto in Mexico and the great goldfields of California. A noted man in his way, a type worthy of observation by a student of human nature, like Valentine Blount, who, having added him to his collection, had drifted into friendship and a speculative partnership which was destined to colour his afterlife. As there remained a couple of hours open to such a task before lunch, the partners settled down to a square business deal, as Mr. Tregonwell, who had possessed himself of transatlantic and other idioms, phrased it in the course of which the following facts were elicited. That the stone, in the first place accidentally discovered as an outdrop in one of the wildest, most desolate regions of the west coast of Tasmania, was the richest ever discovered in any reefing district south of the line, as Mr. Tregonwell magniloquently expressed it. On sinking, even richer ore came to light, as much silver as stone in some of the specimens. He, Tregonwell, had taken care to comply with the labour conditions and the necessary rules and regulations, according to the Tasmanian Mining Act, 
in such case made and provided. He had satisfied the warden of their bona fides, and this gentleman had supported him in all disputes with the rush crowd, which, as usual under such circumstances, had swarmed around the sensational find, as soon as it was declared. Everything, so far, had been plain sailing, but there was sure to be litigation, and a testing of their title on some of the technical points of law which are invariably raised when the claim is rich enough to pay the expenses of litigation. The great thing now was to float the discovery into a company, exhibit the specimens in the larger cities and in England, and offer half the property in shares to the public. This was agreed to. Tregonwell, with practised ease, drew out the prospectus, explaining the wondrous assays which had already been made, the increasing body of the load, its speculative value and unrivalled richness, as it descended to the hundred and fifty feet level. The prospectors had invited tenders for a fifty-head stamp battery to be placed on the ground. Abundance of running water was within easy reach, timber also of the finest quality, unlimited in quantity. Carriage, of course, in a rough, mountainous country, must be an expensive item. The directors were anxious not to minimise the cost in any way, and all statements might be regarded as absolutely truthful. The stone, if it kept up quality and output, would pay for any rate of carriage and the most up-to-date machinery. When a narrow-gauge railway had been completed to the port, where the company had secured wharf accommodation, the transit question would be comparatively trifling. Mr. Blount retired for lunch to the hotel in which Tregonwell had engaged rooms, a quiet, old-fashioned house of highly conservative character, selected by his partner as specially adapted for privacy. The family had inherited the business and the house from the grandfather, who had made the business and built the house in the early days when the island was still known as Van Diemen's Land. Mr. Polglaze, whose portrait in oil still ornamented the dining-room, in company with that of Admiral Rodney, in whose flagship he had been a quartermaster, had reached Tasmania in a whaler from New Zealand. The Clarkstone, having made a successful voyage, and Mr. Polglaze's lay as first mate amounting to a respectable sum, he decided to quit the sea and adopt the more or less lucrative occupation of hotel-keeping. In those days, when the convict population outnumbered the free, in the proportion of fifty to one, when the aboriginal tribes and far more savage convict outlaws terrorised the settlers in a comparatively short distance from Hobart, it was not altogether a peaceful avocation. But Mark Polglaze, a man of exceptional strength and courage, who had enforced discipline and quelled mutiny among the turbulent whaling crews hailing from Sydney Cove, was not the man to be daunted by rioters free or bond. The small but orderly, well-managed inn soon came to be favourably known both to the general public and the authorities, as a house where comfortable lodging was to be procured, and, moreover, where a strict system of orderliness was enforced. When the coaching system came to be developed, for many years the best in Australasia, after admirable roads had been formed by convict labour, the Lord Rodney was the headquarters of the principal firm. From the long range of stabling issued daily in the after-time, the well-bred, 
high-conditioned four-horse teams which did the journey between Hobart and Launceston, a hundred and twenty miles, in a day. To be sure, the metalled road was perfect, the pace, the coaches, the method of driving, the milestones even, strictly after the old English pattern, so that the occasional tourist or military traveller was fain to confess that he had not seen such a turnout or done such stages since the days of the Cottons and the Brackenberries. The pace was equal to that of the fastest defiance or regulator that ever kept good time on an English turnpike road. Here the erstwhile Cornish sailor settled himself for life. To that end he wrote to a young woman to whom he had become engaged before he left Truro on his last voyage, and sent her the wherewithal to pay her passage and other expenses. She was wise enough to make no objection to a home on the other side of the world, as Jean Ingelow puts it, and had no reason to regret her decision. Here they reared a family of stalwart sons and blooming lasses, the latter with complexions rivalling those of Devonshire. They married and spread themselves over the wide wastes of the adjoining colonies, with satisfactory results, but never forgetting to return from time to time to their Tasmanian home, where they could smell the apple blossoms in the orchards and hear the bee humming on the green, clover-scented pastures. The parents, in the fullness of time, had passed away, and lay in the churchyard, near the Wesleyan meeting-house which the old man had regularly attended and generously supported. But his eldest son, lamed through an accident on a goldfield, reigned in his stead. He, too, had a capable wife, it seemed to run in the family, so the name and fame of the Lord Rodney remained good as of old. The prospectus and plan of operations being now regarded as shipshape by Mr. Tregonwell, he proceeded to sketch the locality. It's an awfully rough country, nothing you've ever seen before as a patch on it. We shall have to walk the last stage. A goat could hardly find footing over, not on, mind you, the worst part of the track. How Charlie Herbert, who discovered the show, got along, I can't think. He was more than half starved, did a regular perish, as West Australians say, more than once. However, it was a feat to brag about when he did come upon it, as you'll see when we get there. Herbert's in charge now, I suppose. Yes, he and his mate. You won't find him far off, unless I'm handy. It doesn't do to leave such a jeweller's window to look after itself. There are two wages, men. Charlie takes one, and Jack Clark the other, when they work. They get lumps and lumps of native silver worth fifty pounds and sixty pounds apiece. Is it as rich as all that? Rich, bless your heart. Nothing's been seen like it since Golden Point at Ballarat, and that was alluvial. This is likely to be as rich at two hundred feet as on top, and ten years afterwards as it is now. We may call it a fortune, then, for us and the other shareholders. "'A fortune?' said Tregonwell. "'It's a dozen fortunes. "'You can go home and buy half a county "'besides marrying a duke's daughter "'if your taste lies in the direction of the aristocracy.' "'Hm, ha! "'I'm not sure that one need go out of Australia "'for the heroine of this little romance.' "'What? "'Already captured? "'That's rapid work,' said his partner, "'throwing himself into a mock heroic attitude.' "'You're not a laggard in love, whatever you may be in practical matters. 
However, it's the common lot. Even I, Frampton Tregonwell, have not escaped unwounded. Here he heaved a sigh, so comically theatrical, that Blount, though in no humour to jest on the subject, could not forbear laughing. "'Whatever you may surmise,' he replied, "'we have something more serious to think about at the present time. "'After I have handled this wonderful stone of yours "'and knocked a few specimens out of the face, "'you see I have gained some practical knowledge since we parted, "'then we can discuss the plan of the future. "'In the meantime, I am with you to the scaling of the Frenchman's cap, "'if that forms any part of the programme.' The journeying by land or sea to Hobart had been comparatively plain sailing. From Hobart to the west coast of Tasmania inaugurated a striking change. The tiny steamer, Seagull, to which they committed themselves for thirty hours' trip, was dirty and evil-smelling. The shallow bar at Macquarie Harbour forbade a larger boat. Crowded also, her accommodation was necessarily restricted. The twelve male passengers had one cabin allotted to them. The women shared another, where berths like those at a shearer's hut were arranged at the sides. On a coast by no means well lighted, where no shelter from the fierce gales is found nearer than the South Pole, the passage performed at night is invariably a rough one. All honour is due to the hardy seamen commanding the small coast fleet. They lose no time on the trip, overladen with freight, more also to follow, full passenger lists for a month in advance. That there are not more accidents seems a miracle to the passenger, as they thread their course in and out among the numberless islands and frequent reefs, with marvellous accuracy. Tregonwell, who was half a sailor, by reason of his manifold voyages, was allowed in admiration. "'The skipper must chance it now and then,' he remarked, "'but he doesn't show it, and certainly will not confide in the ordinary passenger.' They bumped on the bar at Macquarie Harbour, and also had a narrow escape at Hell's Gates, formed by the rocky point which runs abruptly northward. They touched bottom in the double whirlpool formed by the island, in the very jaws of the current, where the heavy seas breaking over the tiny seagull would not have taken long to turn her into matchwood. Here the skipper showed himself resourceful in such trifling matters. Rough though the water and dark the night, a man would dash along a spar, laying out a sail to keep her head straight, or bring her round if broadside on, and steering way was lost. Then, full speed astern, perhaps, when not being jammed in too lightly, she glided back into smooth water, ready for another attempt. In an hour, however, the tide rose until the requisite depth of water in the harbour bar enabled them, after the grim ghostly night, to glide up the smooth surface of Macquarie Harbour. It was early morning. They looked out on a sea of mist, walled in by basaltic cliffs, wherein Mounts Heemskirk and Zeehan kept watch over that dreary, wreck-lined coast. Declining breakfast on board, Messrs. Blount and Tregonwell made for the chief hotel of the Macquarie Harbour Township, where on a clean white beach a friendly host, with comely daughters, made them welcome to an excellent meal. End of chapter 6, part 1